G'day folks, welcome to a Shroom Live podcast, which is actually not live tonight. Just thought I'd come on and talk a little bit about how to get started in lure fishing. It's one of those topics that I keep getting questions uh, constantly. And I didn't have time to come live, to go live uh, this this past month, obviously being the holiday season and, and then leading into the start of the year always a busy time but you know getting started in, in lure fishing it's a it can be quite complicated and I guess um, you pretty much have to sit down and go through each each category each criteria and tick off all the boxes before you find success and I've been watching a lot of young anglers uh, that send me messages through my social media and, you know, I've seen a lot of the common pitfalls and problems that they encounter. But eventually they'll, you know, they'll they'll tick off that first fish and that ignites their excitement and they're pretty much along the way to their, you know, soft plastics fishing journey. And it's a whole new world out there and it can be really exciting once you get together a few variables. And like I said, it doesn't have to be complicated. So, first up... Um, so why why would someone want to do lure fishing? Well, it's not so much that it's um superior to other forms of fishing. I wouldn't say so. It's just another avenue in our wonderful sport where you can take further enjoyment. It's always nice to be able to do different things and enjoyment can be achieved through challenging yourself and doing something which is difficult at first uh, requires a bit of self-application and learning and perseverance and when it comes together then that's that's when you get hooked onto this so that's pretty much how my journey in soft plastic started uh, catching fish on bait I really enjoyed that and then I thought hang on what's this you can use an artificial bit of plastic and you can uh, fool a fish into thinking that it's real and at the start i can tell you the common pitfall for me was using the lures that i could buy which were off the shelf in you know the big chains you know just the big shops such as kmart and big w not specialist fishing shops at all just your everyday, you know, convenience. I mean, how would you describe those stores? So that that kind of start for me and grabbing a pack or two of lures with some mates and choosing according to what looked the most real to me, to my eyes, and then basically just trying to figure it out and cast them into the water wherever we fished. And it took a long time to take off the first fish uh, back in those days. There wasn't that much material online in learning how and where to use these lures. They were just basically um, products on the shelf and you had to pretty much figure it out yourself. And like I said, one of the pitfalls that I encountered was the fact that to me, the lure had to look real. It had to be real and it had to keep moving in the water. So just, um, just picture this. You know, some you know, some young angler going to the nearest waterway with some mates, 
casting these lures in. Now, I can't even remember whether I was using braid at that stage. It might have just been monofilament line. So, sensitivity would have been near zero. Um, I would say I, I didn't know what I was doing. And working these lures, I kept them moving by jerking them consistently. So, in my mind, I felt as though the second that the lure would touch the bottom of the sea floor, you know, that puppet show was up. The fish would realize that it's fake and it wouldn't come after the fish. Surprisingly enough, just by jerking it and keeping it suspended near the surface and at um, mid-water column, I did elicit a few strikes, which I didn't know what they were back then. But thinking about it now, they would have they would have had to have been Taylor. So, I guess that was um, one of the first things that I noticed. I was just jerking these lures consistently, constantly, very quick and aggressively, trying to make it look like a fish that's trying to dart and not giving it a chance to do its magic and work its way to the bottom. Now, fast forward many years later, I can tell you that a lot of lure fishing with soft plastics these days requires contact. It's a, it's a contact with the bottom technique. I'd say most, most of the time, nine times out of ten these days, if you're watching someone fish soft plastics in particular, the lure is touching the bottom before they impart further action, generally, generally with a double lift. Back then, like I said, that wasn't the case. So anyway, that's, um, that's a bit of the prologue. So first of all, to get started in lure fishing, you need the right gear. You need, I guess um, if you're doing light line lure fishing in Sydney, you're going to need some light rods in the category between a 1 to 3 or a 2 to 4 rated uh, rod. So these ratings allow us to cast the small lures that are required to catch the bread and butter species that permeate through the Sydney water system. I mean... Once you get that under control, you can start using heavier rods and targeting heavier and bit larger fish. But, you know, at the start, I think we just want to get that first fish. That's that's pretty much what you need to decide on. A 1 to 3 or a 2 to 4, that slight difference in range can depend on whether you want to focus more as a general purpose or a lighter rod and depending on the location that you're fishing and also the brand brand of rod that you purchase as well. What I mean by that is some brands that make a 1 to 3 rated rod may be as stiff if not stiffer than another brand that makes a 2 to 4 kilogram rated rod. And only experience and going to the shop and feeling it, will you be able to, de to determine that, you know, otherwise, you know, just to get started, if you have a rod in that range, the next thing that you want to look at is to make to is to ensure that it's about a seven foot in length. Now I'm not going to be using centimeters to describe the length because, you know, fishing gear traditionally it's rated in in feet and inches. Now don't quote me on this. I mean some brands do rate with with uh, centimeters, but. You know, 99 times out of 100, it's rated in foot and inches. So, a 7-foot rod, there or thereabouts. I guess even a 6-foot 10 
would be appropriate as well or a couple of inches longer than a seven foot. But if you go a bit shorter than that, then it's starting to become a little bit more specialized. The reason why you want a rod around seven foot is because at that length, you still have sufficient cast distance in our waterways uh, because most of the time this this activity is partaken, you know, on foot land-based. And so, although it's not necessary, not necessary to cast far, you know, for all situations, it is nice to have that ability to cast far when it, you know, when it arises. Um, but you don't want it too long either. At the same time, a, a rod that is longer than required can be a little bit more difficult to maneuver and control the fish, especially when it's at your feet. So that's that's the reason why a, a rod approximately about seven foot in length is the ideal one, at least for me anyway. Give or give or uh, give or take a couple of inches either side. Now, in terms of um, purchasing a rod, you're looking for a rod that is made of carbon fiber or graphite. I mean, it's basically graphite and carbon fiber. I mean, I'm not going to go into the nitty gritty, but it's made of carbon as opposed to made of fiberglass, which is a different material, which is not as sensitive and the rods are a lot thicker. Just to give you an idea what I mean by that, you know, if you're going to walk into a place like Big W and Kmart, I think nine rods out of 10 in that place would be classified as fiberglass or a composite mostly of fiberglass and they're rather thick and they're quite bendy and they're quite sloppy in action. And another thing is that they're not very sensitive. If you purchase a carbon fiber or a graphite rod, then you don't have those characteristics. Generally, a rod of that material is going to be a lot crisper, lighter for its strength and sensitive, which is what we want. Lure fishing is all about feel and sensitivity rates very highly as a factor in deciding how successful you may be. Most rods, once you get past the $100 bracket, are generally carbon fiber. If I mean, if you, if you don't know what the material is, you know, at that price range, you're, you're pretty safe when it comes to what you're picking off the shelf. Not always, but that's just, just a rough guideline. Uh, most rods will advertise that they're made of some level of carbon content within it or a composite of sorts. And generally, the more expensive the rod, the more likely and the higher the carbon content that it possesses. So that's um, something that can be pretty safe to, to assume if you're going to pull a rod off the shelf there. Now, the next, um, the next thing I'm going to talk about is the real size. So the real size, you have two choices generally. Just like for rods, you've got the 1 to 3, 2 to 4 kilogram rated rod at, at around 7 foot. And for the reels, I mean, it can depend on the brand, but I'm going to base these ratings off the two major ones that make the reels, the most popular reels. It makes sense to base it around that sizing uh, format. So a size 1000, 2000, they're about the same across both brands of, you know, which I'm talking about here. I'm talking about Shimano and Daiwa and a two and a half thousand reel, which is slightly larger. 
Personally, for me, I like to use a 1000 slash 2000 size reel uh, because it's um, small, it's light, it's got enough punch in it and it, it's got enough in it to perform its task of working light line lures. Now, it's a little bit more specialized. So someone that wants to use a reel for multiple rods may lean towards a two and a half thousand size, which is a little bit larger. So what happens with a larger rod, a reel, sorry, is that you've got more line capacity. Your retrieve ratio, although the same because the spool diameter is larger, will mean that you retrieve line a little bit more quickly. But Oh, and also one more thing, you may have a little bit higher of a drag uh, performance there, just more more tension that it can provide, which they're rated in terms of kilos on the brochure. But you are sacrificing the entire, you know, the total weight of your your setup. And that can impart on your action and fatigue your wrists, for example, if that's you know, if, if, if that happens to be one of the key things which your, you know, your action uh, is affected by, which I would say personally for me that that is a factor. I do, which I'll talk about a little bit about later, you know, the actions that I impart on the lures can involve many little twitches and over a day of using heavier gear that will fatigue my wrists a bit, potentially. I think it has in the past at least, these days possibly not, but you know, it's a main, it's a big consideration there. And so, like I said, I, I do lean towards the 1000 to 2000 size reels. Now, one, one consideration that a lot of people have, besides from line capacity between the 2500 size reels and the 1 slash 2000 size, I would say that line capacity is generally a non-factor when it comes to fishing in the estuaries. I mean, touch wood, I've never been spooled properly. I've actually never come close to being spooled by any particular fish that I've caught, whether it's a kingfish or a mulloway, which are the two most common larger species found in the systems. So if that's a fear of yours, you can rest easy using the 1 to 2,000 size reels. And another thing that people ask me often is what about the drag capacity? Well, I mean, it's hard to measure drag without using scales and, you know, sitting down and performing an experiment of sorts. But personally for me, I haven't found a problem with any reel in terms of the max amount of drag that it can pump up. It's always sufficient, um, sufficient for my purposes because the main limiting factor of how much drag you can put on depends on the strength of the line and the leader, which I'm going to be talking about next. So most times you're going to find that your line's going to snap well before you can impart maximum pressure, maximum drag that the reel can pump out. So to me, it's almost a non-factor. Uh, the drag performance of a reel is extremely important, but it's not the max drag per se. It's more so relating to how smooth the reel can provide that drag when it's asked to do so. So when you turn that knob up on the reel, is it starting to 
increase the pressure but still maintain a smooth pull? Or does that start to fall away and it starts to catch on and stick? You know, that, you know the, the classic sticky drag where it's chirping. It's not pulling consistently. It's sl- slipping for a few turns and then holding on, catching on for some reason and then continuing again. Uh, that's how you end up with a, with a disaster, basically. You're going to end up popping uh, not somewhere along the system or pulling a hook or, you know, ultimately losing the fish uh, due to gear failure, possibly. Um, so, yeah, so that's um, that's pretty much the reels. Now, when it comes to choosing a reel, you want a reel, firstly, of the appropriate size and price range that you can afford. So, most reels these days, you know, I haven't really been specific with what brands or models of gear that you need. For example, when it comes to rods, I've just said you need a carbon fiber graphite rod. And once you hit about the $100 range, you're in that, you know, you're in that um, category. I'm going to do the same thing here with the reels. Most reels above about a $50 reel will last you a couple of seasons from a reputable brand and it will do the job at that size of a 1,000, 2,000 or 2,500 if one decides to go a little bit heavier. Now, when it comes to uh, more expensive reels, so this this can be a can of worms and I have addressed this uh, in a in a full video on my channel uh, in the past, but ultimately you do get increased performance with price, but it is a, a law of diminishing returns. So I'm going to leave it there. So once you get about $50, you're doing the job. If you're paying $500 for a reel, sure, it's going to do a slightly better job, but it's not going to be 10 times as much, 10 times superior. Now, once you have now, so now we've talked about, you know, rods, reels, and now we're going to talk about lines. So going back to the, going back to the example, actually not really an example, but more so my past history when it comes to how I came across lure fishing and, you know, opened the doors to this new world uh, along, you know, during my journey, I would say that um, a line I didn't use braid until much later. So I did start catching a lot of fish on monofilament line at the very start, probably for, you know, a couple of reasons. I'd say number one, braid back then wasn't very popular. It's not nearly as popular as it is now. It was seen as some futuristic technology and... I can still remember my first few spools of braid. They they didn't last long. I guess if you fished every day for a week, they were already deteriorating in front of your eyes. They were losing color. They were getting really fluffy. They felt like they felt like um, what's that material? That t- uh, teeth floss, tooth floss. They f- they felt like that material, and it can be quite sticky and. Yeah, and they were quite expensive too in comparison to monofilament back in those days. So I went straight ahead and got lures first up and then I started to figure out how to get them to work for me. And it was a little bit later that I decided to transition to braid. But braid these days, 99 times out of 100, 
except for some very specialist cases, that's what you would use. Now, why braid over a traditional cheaper monofilament, which is polyethylene, that's the material. Um, now, monofilament is very stretchy and it's quite thick and heavy for the amount of pull and resistance that it gives. So that works against that works against us in lure fishing, especially light line, because the lures that we throw, they're very light. The whole system is very light. And if the line weighs a lot more than the lure itself or ag you know, the aggregate weight of the line at least, then it's dominating the it's dominating the action of the water of the lure once you've cast out a sufficient amount of line. So that that's one negative, and that has many impacts on it, including sensitivity of what you can feel on the line, how far you can deliver that soft plastic lure, and also monofilament is extremely stretchy. So. Like, you can do this test yourself really quickly. So, you can just cut, you know, a length of a one meter length of monofilament and just pull on that. And you'll see that it stretches, I'd say, at least five centimeters, if not more. So, if every meter is stretching five centimeters and you're doing a 20, 30 meter cast, you're not feeling all that much when the, when the fish is um, doing little nibbles on your lure. It's all absorbed into that. In, into that line and so that's where braid braid shines braid it's a it's a material that's woven together it's very thin and light and wispy and so that's one advantage when it comes to increased cast distance and it also is not stretchy at all having near zero stretch which is what braid that's one of their main properties of braid. It allows you to feel every little tap, nibble, and brush of your lure from, you know, your your quarry from your fi from the fish that you're targeting, and so that's one huge advantage of using braid. Now, there's one disadvantage in using braid besides the price, and that's the fact that monofilament is transparent. And so, you can just tie a lure onto the end of that and the fish, for most intents and purposes, will not really notice that monofilament. Now, it, it, is, um, it is a fallacy to believe that monofilament and fluorocarbon lines are invisible in the water, particularly fluorocarbon being invisible. Uh, because you just have to go dive underneath the water to see that you can still see it, regardless of how clear it looks, you know, up in the air in front of your hand when you're picking it up at the at at the tackle shop. So that's a that's a fallacy. But you know, for all, for more, you know, for all intents and purposes, we can treat it like that. But braid is the complete opposite. It's translucent. It blocks light. It's colorful. It looks foreign in the water. Uh, particularly to a fish and so fish generally don't ignore that and so they're less likely to hit a lure that's tied directly to braid so you can probably see where i'm going with this on one hand if you're tying your lure onto monofilament 
you can't feel what's happening. You probably can't cast very far. Um, but at least the fish may not notice it. But if you're using braid, you're getting a great cast. You're getting great sensitivity. But how do you even elicit that first bite when it's a little bit wary of what it can see that's attached to the supposed lure? So to overcome this, that's why we have to tie a clear bit of line onto the end of our braid to get both advantages of both worlds. That is what we call a leader. So leaders, which is basically just a, a section of line that you tie to the end of your braid onto the working end of your system, that is going to be clear. That is going to be strong. It's going to have a little bit of stretch and that will allow you to use mostly braid through your system, but have a clear section at the end that the fish will probably ignore in most cases, if it's not too thick anyway. Now, one disadvantage of having, of needing a leader is the fact that you're going to have to learn to tie a line-to-line -line connection. So you're going to have to learn how to tie between the braid and that clear section of leader, and we call that a leader knot. So... Why am I making, you know, a big point about this? Look, I get so many messages in my inbox across my social medias and one very common question is, can I get away and not tie a leader? Like, why do I need a leader? What to do? What's the point of it? I don't know a leader knot. I just want to fish. I just want to catch something. Do I even need to use braid? These are all the reasons. So every step of the process that I encountered when I started, I'm just pretty much discussing it now and I'm still getting that reinforcement from the barrage questions relating to that. So, one, you know, one thing that everyone has to bite the bullet on is to learn a line-to-line -line connection to tie that braid to the clear section of leader. Now, well, you know, the leader doesn't have to be long either. It can just be you know, a short one from about 30 centimeters to, let's say, several meters. Personally, for me, I just keep it to one consistent length for most cases at about an arm span length. And if you want to convert that to an actual measured length, that would be about a 1.7 meter length of leader. Okay, so that's, that's a start for anyone that wants to just get into it. Now, when it comes to knots, there are, there are many knots. I mean, there are many knots when it comes to terminal knots and uh, leader knots. These days, I'm tying an FG knot, but I've, I've tied so many knots over the years just finding what works best for me. I started with a double uni knot and then I transitioned to a slim beauty and then some no-name knot which was similar to a slim beauty. I gave the Albright knot a chance. I've even tied a Bimini. I've tied so many different knots until I decided that, you know what, let's just bite the bullet, spend spend a week looking up some videos and learn how to tie this FG knot because when I look when I looked at this knot, it had all these advantages. For the cost of being one of the more difficult knots to tie um, out on the field. And back in those days, I think tying it without a without a tool 
was was a pretty big deal. I mean, these days, these days, a lot of people are using the FG knot for light line fishing, you know. But back then, an FG knot wouldn't be classified as a light line knot. In fact, a lot of questions would arise where people would want to know, you know, d- does it work for really thin lines? Is there is there an issue there with the slipping? Yeah, there is an issue. Um, but these days, most people have learned how to tie it without encountering those issues. But let me stress that you don't need to be tying an FG knot. There are so many other knots. A full blood knot, an Albright, Slim Beauty, a double uni, um, a surgeon's knot. They're all effective knots. And the strength and reliability of that knot, it can, you know, it can um, vary a little bit. But ultimately, it rests on the hands of the tire. So if there's a knot that you've learnt pretty well, you can pretty much stick to it. It's going to do the business for you. So that's probably a little bit of a learning curve, learning how to tie that leader onto the end of your braid. And now, you know, as you transition down the braid, we get to the business end now. At the end of the leader, that's finally where you tie your lure. You tie a soft plastic onto the end of that line. Now, before I go into that process, I mean, it might sound comical to some people here that already, I mean, they're just listening to this podcast for the sake of it uh, because I hope that I'm entertaining, not just um, educational, but, you know, I get a lot of questions of people saying, where's the sinker? Like, you know, where, where, where do you put the sinker? I want to put a sinker on. How do you cast this thing? And then you say jig head and then they say, what's that? And you say, oh, that's the hook with the lead. And then they say, oh, what does that look like? And then you show them. So basically onto the end of your line, you tie a jig head, which is the word for a hook, which has, you know, a bit of a, a generally a round ball or a bullet ball, bullet shaped um lead that's been soldered on i mean i don't know if that's the exact way to describe but let's just imagine a bit of lead soldered on to to just behind the eye of the hook that is the jig head so it's the hook and the weight at the same time so basically what happens is once you thread your lure onto the end of that jig head the lead is going to be where the head of the lure is if that makes sense and it's that lead, which is quite light at times, that provides all the weight and resistance to loading the rod to enabling you to cast it out. So yeah, that's um so that's how that works. Now there's one more question that just came to mind, and that is where's the where's the purpose and why aren't you tying a swivel in there uh, to connect the braid to the leader? Because I know to, to some people, this seems like a like a question that is, you know, what are you, what are you talking about? Think for a second. No, it's not true. I get a lot of these questions on, you know, can, can I just simply tie, tie a swivel? I don't know a lead or not, but I certainly can connect two pieces of line together and I do it all the time when I'm bait fishing and it's with a swivel. Hello. <laughs> so, uh, no. So, I'm going to cut everyone off there. No swivel because... First of all, everything that I've explained about so far has been to minimize the weight of the line and to increase the sensitivity and transmission of bites. 
there was only one bit of material there which worked against it, which is which was that section of leader, but we needed that so that the fish would still hit our lures because that bit of line is transparent. Otherwise, having braid, it's less likely to do so. I mean, there's another factor too, abrasion resistance. Um, but you know, I'm not I'm not gonna go too much into that. But that swivel, that swivel question keeps coming up and yeah, no swivel because the weight of the swivel itself weighs the line down. And so if you have a bite on the end of your lure and that travels up through the leader, then it goes through a really heavy swivel and that dampens the feel. And not only that, can you just imagine that swivel just weighing down the line at an artificial point? So it's not a direct connection between you and the fish anymore. It's more so going through the lure to the swivel, which is what you're feeling on the end of your line, and then back to you. So yeah, that's 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 why that's a bad idea. Uh, second of all, most of the time to cast really light lures, you need to wind the lure pretty far up. So you can do a flick cast. You know, you can't really um, do a lob cast when it comes to lures which are really light with really tiny jig heads of about a 1 16th ounce. Most of these uh, rods, you know, they're made so they're designed for light line lure fishing. They're supposed to load at the tip, so where you wind in really far and then you do a flick cast. Yeah, that won't work with the swivel because you might accidentally wind past and break break a guide, break, break, a, break a guide ring winding too far so yeah not a good idea just a potential issue and you know it's best not to get started on that it's best to just learn that leader knot and get straight into it yeah and one more thing about the leaders i haven't even mentioned it yet these days the most common material for a leader is to use at least for inshore light line fishing it may be different offshore where monofilament has its place but fluorocarbon materials, fluorocarbon line, that's the standard these days. I use a lot of, um, you know, I, I use a lot of fluorocarbon materials for my light line leaders. It's just another material which is similar to monofilament. It has a little bit less stretch. Uh, the color of it seems to be a little bit more clear and transparent. Um, and it's a little bit tougher on the outside of the material. So it serves to provide a little bit more abrasion resistance at the working end. Is it necessary? Uh, some people have tried to convince me that it's not necessary. I, I'm still, I'm still in two minds about that, but I do use fluorocarbon leaders. They are, however, a little bit more expensive than a quality monofilament line. So yeah, so price wise, Monofilament is a lot cheaper. Uh, fluorocarbon a lot more expensive. But if you believe in its advantages, then it's still the way to go uh, in my eyes because that's still what I do. All right, now, lures. Now, once you've got all that down, lures and jig heads. So, lures generally we're looking at, so with a one to three kilogram and a two to four kilogram outfit, with a size one to 2,000 size reel, or maybe two and a half thousand, you're looking to cast lures between about a two inch in length to about a three inch. 
could go heavier, but I'm just going to address this really narrow window because I'm going to be talking about this in terms of targeting brim widening flathead and, you know, inshore tailor. Uh, if you get lucky, you might hook onto some other species as well, but that's, that's kind of what I'm, what I'm looking into. That's what the everyday fisherman is looking to target or at least come across most commonly. So at these lengths, we're looking at, you know, several different lure types. On the market these days, there are a myriad of what they call grub lures. So grub lures are those lures which have a curly tail working end to it. And so these lures have a very strong and noticeable action in the water and they flutter like a ribbon. So, you know, if you don't know what a grub grub lure is, just imagine a worm or a ribbon and you pull it through the water and what's that ribbon going to do? It's going to tumble and turn and flick around. That is, you know, approximately the action of a grub style lure. Now, these lures particularly in natural colors. So when I say natural, anything which if you looked outside your window into nature and you see that color, that's generally natural. So when I'm looking outside, I'm seeing the brown ground, the green grass, colors like that, maybe even a blue or a, or a white. That's, that's natural. So a natural colored grub lure generally is effective in uh, fishing, at least in the areas that I fish, which is metropolitan Sydney. In, in any area within, you know, the more populous areas in Sydney, the popular systems of the Georges River system, Port Hacking River, uh, Parramatta River, Sydney Harbour, and at times the Hawkesbury River. Now, that's probably not the only place where colours like that would work well. Anywhere, probably anywhere, even overseas, those colours would always work because they're natural. That's the point of it. Now, that might not necessarily mean that they're the most effective, but they all generally work. Um, now, it could be just due to color itself or due to the recognition of fish's eyes in terms of contrast, which I did talk about uh, before in a previous podcast. So, But, you know, I, I'm not going to go into too much in-depth there about that aspect. I'm just going to keep to the more common beliefs these days at this stage, for at least for this introductory lure fishing podcast here. Um, yeah, so that's a grub style or... Sometimes they're also called wriggler type lures as well. You know, the squidgy wriggler being one of the first ones on the market. The more popular ones, they had what they call a squidgy wriggler, which had a fish head, but a grub style tail. Albeit a really narrow, thin um, ribbon on the end of it, but it's practically can be summarized into that category. Other effective lures would include... Um, Let's say let's go let's go with paddle tails for the next one. So paddle tail lures. So for those that don't know what a paddle tail lure is, it's it's um it's a fish shaped lure, but if you can just picture the tail, the tail fin kicking side to side. So they're also called T tail lures because the shape of the tail being a T-shaped in some cases, it 
it just catches onto the side of the water and as the water tries to work its way past it causes the tail to move to the side but then the side that it moves towards catches even more water because of the way that it's angled towards it so it causes it to flip the other way and so you've got an alternating kicking action hence the paddle tail it's paddling the lure looks like it's swimming or paddling through the water that's another effective lure type uh, for many fish but particularly predatory fish and so, you know, with, with this style of fishing, if you're going to throw a paddle style, paddle tail styled lure, again, you're looking at about a two and a half to, to three inch paddle tail. And yeah, plen- plenty on the market there. And that is also another effective lure type for bread and butter species. Now, I think I'll go through one more soft plastic, which is, you know, the classic shaped fish shaped um lure but it doesn't have a tail that actually catches on and looks like it has an action and that is the flick style flick bait style or the jerk shed jerk shad style plastic so the, these lures are a little bit more difficult to get going they don't appear to have an action they look very streamlined but they can be very effective so I just want to address the point that a lure that has action can be very effective, but a lure that appears to have very little action can be just as effective. The modes in getting them to be effective are a little bit different. So for the latter example, the flick bait, you have to, as an angler, impart the action yourself. You're trying to mimic a fleeing bait fish. And so how how could one do that? Well, by causing it to dart regularly and really quickly and erratically without any familiarity to the pattern. So a lot of these grub style and paddle tail lures with a very basic action, they all look the same on the fall. I mean, if a fish is getting used to seeing lures that are thrown very regularly that have a very similar action and it has a bad experience and it can remember what happened last time. You know, throwing the same lure, particularly the same style lure, it may not be very effective at times. And so that's why it's good to have a broad style, broad variety of lures that could work on any particular day. And a flickbait, flickbait lure can be very good in a really pressured place. I find that um, when the when the when the when the Z-Man grubs were very popular back in the day when I would say I mean they're more popular these days but back in the day when I started to catch on to using those lures from the you know I I I pretty much regressed from the squidgy regulars I found that I, I so this was back in the day when they still came in packs at ten. And there were just 10 lures in a packet and they were just not really separated by any material. There was no like holder inside the packet. So it was back in those days before that in the original early packaging. And they were very effective. But over time, I've noticed that, you know, there's a lot more on the market. A lot more lures of similar shapes, similar styles. You know, it's a lot harder to tempt fish these days. And so started using, started using, um, paddle tail lures and then flick baits and flick baits can be very effective because like I said you can create that unique action 
that's unique to you and your wrists. And it has no familiar tempo on the fall as a grub style or a paddle tail lure. So they're the three types um, a beginner angler should basically focus on when it comes to soft plastics fishing. Uh, I could go into probably you know several more if I can think about think of it right now, but it's not necessary. So th- those three definitely someone that wants to do well in this venture should master. Now, putting those lures onto a jig head. So the jig head, again, just to reiterate, is where you're going to find the lead ball that's been soldered onto the hook. Now, matching the hook and the weight of the, you know, the the jig head to the plastic is extremely important. But here's a general rule. Generally, when I'm fishing land-based, I'm using somewhere between a 1 16th ounce lead to about a 1 8th ounce depending on the conditions. So if the water's a little bit deeper, the current's a bit stronger, then I'm going to head towards that heavier range. If it's a bit quieter, there's not much wind, I'm getting sufficient distance, then I'll stick to the 1 16th ounce. Generally, a good rule of thumb is to use as light a jig head as as is necessary to, to do what you want the lure to do. Um... It's most effective at that stage. So the more weight that you uh, put on, I find that generally it could mean the fish are less likely to hit that lure. Not always. It's just a very basic general summarized rule here. So, but it's a good it's a good rule to live by to fish by. Where if you can fish one sixteenth ounce, stick with that one. That's probably better than going to a one twelfth or a one eighth. That's in general now once once uh, once you've got the weight of the jig head sorted the next step would be to choose the size of the hook of the jig head that will match the length of the plastic now just to give everyone just a general you know pick here on what to do so like i've already said if you're starting off maybe a 1 16th to a 1 8th start there and for a hook size, a hook size two, a hashtag two, number two, as they call it. So not a two slash O, a two O, or a two O. That's a big hook. We're looking at a hashtag two or a number two. You can go a number one. You can go a one O or one O. You can go smaller than a size two to a size four. But, you know, for a beginner, let's not get too involved in you know, matching this with that, start off with just a hashtag size number two. That's it. Number two, you're going to be sorted most times out of 10. More times out of 10, a number two is going to suit it as opposed to any other size. Or a number one if you really want to go that way. But it depends on the brand of the jig heads and even within the brand on the series as well. For example, TT jig heads, if you're looking at the ones which have Gamagatsu hooks, Sorry, Gamma Katsu hooks. Uh, a lot of people say Gamma Gatsu, but it's actually Gamma Katsu. So Gamma Katsu hooks, a size anything, is actually a bit smaller than a Mustad, for example. So you'll find that they're, you know, the yellow packs, which say the, yeah, like I said, the Gamma Katsus are a little bit smaller for the same size as the Mustads. And, you know, like I said, you just 
there's slight variations in everything from real sizes to rod ratings that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, but one sixteenth ounce, about a size number two, suits you for the grubs that I talked about, suits you for the little paddle tails that I talked about, and the little flick baits, all within about a two to a three inch range. So that's the target that we're talking about here. Nothing bigger, smaller. It's that light line finesse fishing uh, to get started. Now, is there anything else that I really need to talk about here? I guess I might talk a little bit about um, location. So now that you've got your gear, you know what 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 shall what should one do? Well, personally for me, I find that the best place to start is the nearest body of water in most cases. For most anglers, that's the body of water that you probably want to master. That's the one that you could probably duck down for a quick half hour without much travel time. And that's the one where you're going to be able to experiment and try new techniques, fish different conditions, fish different times of the day, tides, and find success. So, but let's say that you can't fish a place like that let's say you live next to a place where you just simply cannot fish the local waters let's say you live in i don't know olympic park and uh, and unfortunately you cannot fish haslam's creek powell's creek homebush bay so you're kind of stuck what should you do well a lot of light line fishing it's best done in bays where you can walk around. And the depths that we're talking about are between half a meter to about two to three meters out in front of you on the cast. So if you can picture a place that has that kind of depth, that's the place to start. And that's where you're going to find success uh, with this uh, fishing style. So... Once you find depth like that, then it's a matter of, so, yeah, so it's a matter of just now working the nearby areas and learning where the structure is in front of you. you, And, you know, are you fishing over mud? Are you fishing over sand? Are you fishing an artificial wall? So some examples of interesting places to focus on would be fishing over sand. You might find that there's a widening and flatted, and so you might adjust the types of lures or the technique that you're using uh, for that species. If you're fishing areas with a lot of snags in brown water, maybe you're looking at mostly brim and flatted in this case, maybe brim, brim being the predominant species that likes to, likes to mooch off the oysters, then you might start using more grub style lures or doing little twitches and keeping the lure close to the bottom and doing a lot of pauses for example so yeah that's 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 location based data if you have a lot of flow then maybe using faster sinking lures the paddle tails the flick baits might be a little bit more appropriate to getting to the bottom or like i said earlier match it with a heavier jig head instead of using a 1 16th you go to a 1 8th ounce so, location, I've just given people a bit of an idea on where you can get started. Now, techniques, once you've got that area in front of you and you know what you can catch, I mean, most of these are going to be general techniques that will work for anything in the water. A slow lift is the first technique that one should learn. 
I believe that's the technique that I tried to master when I first started. So I did catch my first fish on a lure was a brim. And I think the next 50 fish were also brim. And the 51st fish was a flathead. Uh, most of this was due to the fact that I was fishing in a particular area that had a lot of brim. And I just didn't know how to catch flathead because my first fish was a brim. And then I learned to fish lures really slowly. And I transitioned to a lift. A lift is a very unsuscepting, not very erratic action. It's kind of gentle. It's slow. It's not going to freak out the brim, which are very timid in nature relative to flathead. So most of the time I was pausing lures on the bottom, moving it very slowly, gently, and brim loved that. Whereas flathead, they may not have been as interested. So that's, yeah, a bit of an interesting story there. So slow lift, a slow lift is basically where once you've cast out the lure and you've waited till it hits the bottom, when the lures hit the bottom, you will notice that your line suddenly seems to be slack. So if you basically wound to the lure and you felt that it had tension and it was tight on the cast and then you waited several seconds, at some stage you will notice that almost like a flick, flip of a switch, the line just gets all droopy. That's what they call slack line. And that's when your lure is on, lure is on the bottom. So once it's on the bottom, you can do a little lift a little lift being maybe say move the rod tip somewhere between 30 centimeters to 60 centimeters something in that order i'm just giving an actual length measurement because saying a little lift a medium lift a large lift i don't think it does anyone really any good especially if they're a beginner they want to know how much do i move what so if i said move the lure 30 centimeters how do, they, how, do, how do they know they've moved their lure 30 centimeters? But what they can do is, once it's hit the bottom, move their rod tip about 60 centimeters. That should be roughly correct. So something like that. So if you do that, and then after the lift, you wind back down with the slack to keep a little bit of tension. It doesn't matter if you overdo it a little bit. That's not too critical. It's just a more of a refinement thing if you can get it wound back in without disturbing the fall of the lure that's fine even if you do disturb the fall of the lure that's a-okay and if you can just do that better hit the bottom again do another lift and work it all the way back to you at some stage of repeating that cast and action you're probably gonna get hooked up to a fish at some stage it's just it's just a matter of time fish the areas some of the things that i talked about you select an appropriate place. Some stage, you're going to tick that, tick that fish off, tick that box off and open your account. Slow lift. Easy peasy. Now, one of the more effective and more general techniques that will work for not just brim but other species that can be a little bit more aggressive and predatory would be a double lift. So in this action, you're making the lure dart and what happens when you make a lure dart? It makes the fish, it triggers the fish sometimes to feel as though it threatened a bait. And so whether the fish was interested in the lure at the beginning or not, it now is. It's like, it's, it's like those prank videos that people do where 
somebody's walking along the street and then suddenly 30 people run by as though there's some monster behind them. And then that person that's a, an innocent bystander would just join in and run with them. It's just, it's just what you do. You've triggered something. And that's the same thing with this double lift. You do the first lift and then the second lift. So it's like a twitch twitch. So with the first action, which I called a lift, you know, a, a simple gradual lift, this is more like a double lift or a double hop, as I call it. You're hopping the lure off the bottom. And it's a little bit faster, and the twitches can be a little bit smaller. So maybe instead of doing a 60-centimeter lift, do two 30-centimeter twitches upwards. That will add up to a 60-centimeter lift. That's probably as easy as I can explain it. Twitching the rod tip up 30 centimeters at a time. And what that does is it makes it look like the bait's dying or weakened or threatened and trying to get away, but its complete movement to get away from danger only brings it so far that it's insufficient. So it tries again, and that gives the predatory fish a chance to think about, hang on, what's going on? Let me go in and have a look and attack that on the fall. And so that's why there's always people saying that they, they're getting hit generally when the lure is traveling back down or as they call it on the fall, on the drop. That's another way to call it, on the drop. So when the lure, so after you've even parted the lift or the double hop, at that time when the lure is sinking back to the bottom, we call that on the drop. So on the drop is when fish generally decide to hit the lure. That's when you get the bites. You can still get it on the lift, but most of the time you're going to feel it on the fall, on the drop. And that's what they mean. So, and that's what I think is happening as well. So that's technique number two. Technique number three, it's quite simple, uh, but I do find it a little bit more limited. It's the slow, slow wind or what they call the slow roll. Slow roll so when you're winding the lure back in towards you at a constant pace, we call that a roll, a rolling action. You're just winding it back in. They, they, they could just call it a slow wind um, or just retrieve or, you know, some other way. But, you know, like <laughs> like a lot of things in fishing, it can seem a bit complicated, like, like the phrase walk the dog. You know, if you do a lot of lure fishing, you know what walking the dog is. But, you know, if you don't, it's like, what is that? <laughs> anyway, a slow roll is a slow wind. Winding a lure in slowly is extremely effective as well. You're just ensuring that the lure has its inherent tail action, which is the grub tail fluttering or the paddle tail kicking side to side. And if you just keep it swimming, they're going to hit it. And I guess it's really funny because I said in the in, in the start of this podcast that I originally didn't want the lure to stop moving and I kept twitching it. And so naturally, something like a slow roll should appeal to me, but these days it doesn't. <laughs> it's it's a it's a weird thing what fishing does and what, you know, what could happen when you experience molds you into the angler that you become. Um, yeah, so that's that's a slow roll. There's not much more to that. So how do you decide how quick to wind it? That's probably a good question that I should answer there. Not too quick. I guess 
if we're talking about a size 2000 reel, just trying to imagine it now, maybe about one full rotation of the handle every two to four seconds. So if you can just imagine, let's say three seconds. These are all just guidelines to get people started, by the way. So I haven't actually got a stopwatch and uh, ruler and measured any of this. It's just a guideline for those that really want to get into it. So if you pick up your reel and you start turning the handle, if you're turning it as fast as you can, you're probably doing five, let's say five to 10 full circles on the handle per second. That's too fast. I want that speed to be about one full rotation every two to four seconds, or maybe say three seconds. So yeah, three seconds, every three seconds. That's a good speed. That's gonna get the wriggler working. That's gonna get the paddle tail working. Now, the last section that I'm gonna talk about is what I often do, and it's most applicable to flick bait lures which don't have the moving part on the end. So I do a series of twitches, somewhere between three to five, and they're very quick, subtle, but sharp twitches. So if you're gonna just imagine twitching a lure, doing the second, I think it was the second action that I talked about, the double hop, except that you're gonna do about five, three to five hops. But because they have to add up to about a 60 centimeter lift, then they all have to be really small, if that makes sense. They all have to not move too much. So the aggregate of the twitches should add up to one normal lift or two double hops, except we're doing five of them. Why is that good or what's it do? It makes the lure appear alive in the water. It's most effective with the lure that has zero action, which is the flick bait. So you're making a dance in front of the fish, almost in the same in the same level of the water column, and that triggers them to bite. And you know this this technique also works very well with grub lures, which is what I use it for as well, and paddle tail lures. Although paddle tail lures are more likely to do a double lift, but not necessarily exclusively the case. All right, so I think that's pretty much all I need to to talk about so I think I've gone through let's go through the we've gone through the gear the rods the reels the line the need for a leader some of the common misconceptions um, the the working end of the lure which is the jig head and the um, and the lure itself three three different types of lures talked about their characteristics um, and then some guidelines how to choose areas to fish and actions of the lures. So I guess right now all you have to do is just get out there and uh, give it a go. So yeah, so yeah, I'm going to wrap up this uh, Shroom Live podcast here, just doing a solo. So hopefully that helps. If anyone has any questions, you know where to find me. And certainly if you have any feedback on this format, then let me know because... Um, yeah, this is the first time I've done done a show like this. Just basically, pre. I mean, this is all done right off the top of the dome and I haven't got any notes or anything. I'm just speaking <laughs> in front of an air conditioner, really. So, on a, on, on a summer's evening. So, yeah. So, if you want to leave me some comments, if you like it or if you don't like it, 
drop a comment somewhere on Instagram or especially YouTube. I'm going to see it there. And yeah, if you have any other ideas on any other future shows that I should do, yeah, then definitely shoot, shoot me out a message there. And yeah, this one won't be posted on YouTube, of course. This is going just straight to the podcast platforms. But if you ever want to catch me live, which is probably going to be my next show anyway, you can go catch it there on YouTube generally on Saturday nights at 7.30 p.m. Once, probably about once every month. Sometimes I have guests, sometimes just solo answering your questions. But yeah, thank you very much and uh, have a have a good night.